0: At this point, the coronavirus doesn't need much of an introduction. This is our fourth episode on the coronavirus outbreak, since we recorded the first one in early February, when there were 11 cases of COVID-19 in the US. As of today's recording, there are over 1.3 million known cases in the US, and there have been over 84,000 deaths. While the increase in rate of new cases appears to have leveled off, we are still experiencing over 20,000 new cases per day and 1,600 deaths per day. Despite this reality, many states and cities are deciding to end their lockdowns, reopen businesses, and allow public gatherings. This has raised concerns from a number of public health officials about the possibility of a second wave of infections, hospitalizations, and deaths if the country reopens too quickly. But even the most cautious plans to reopen must be weighed against the staggering economic and psychological toll of the lockdown. Certainly, the idea of remaining cooped up in our homes well into the summer is daunting, even for those of us who feel the continued stay-at-home measures are warranted, especially those of us trying to juggle work-from-home schedules and parenting small children. So where do we go from here? How do we reopen the country safely? What is the most prudent way forward? We're going to be discussing these critical questions in this episode. Additionally, we'll be discussing ways to keep you and your family safe during and after the lockdown by addressing some of the theories of disease transmission that hold water scientifically and some that don't. So thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Brian James, associate professor at Rush University Medical Center. And this is Epidemiology Counts from the Society for Epidemiologic Research, a podcast that gives you up-to-date information on the state of health research straight from researchers who are deeply involved with this work. Once again, I'm joined by our two experts in infectious disease epidemiology, Justin Lessler from Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, and Michael Mina from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Thanks, guys, for joining us again. Thanks a lot. All right.
1: Nice to be here, Brian. Great.
0: All right, well, thanks, and let's jump right into this. So, First question, right off the bat, where are we at on the epidemic curve in your assessment? Have we hit the peak? What's
1: the peak? (laughs) You tell us. I mean, so I think for most places, and let's just pretend, uh, let's leave New York City out of the discussion Mm -hmm. for a moment, because that's a sort of different animal. But uh, most places, I think we may have hit a peak in the sense that Uh, Social distancing measures, the things we've done to respond to and to control this epidemic Mm -hmm. have worked and um, At least partially and have uh, mitigated if not sort of turned the tide on the first wave Mm -hmm. So we now have decreasing cases. So I think in many places And it's a very diverse country in a very diverse world, but in many places in the United States I think we indeed have hit the peak
0: Right locally
1: But that doesn't mean that we're like out of the woods and, the, and we're past the real peak of the epidemic, because so many susceptible people are still out there and there is hardly anywhere in the world that is not At risk for the um, at risk for the outbreak and uh, A second wave that could be as big or bigger than the first wave
0: Michael, what's your take?
1: Yeah, I I fully agree. I think,
2: um, you know, what we're so used to and conditioned to look at epidemic curves, you know, whether it's flu season or whatever it might be, that we're so used to seeing uh, a flu season, you know, tick up and then come back down. And then we're used to that meat that comes down usually on its own without enormous social change like we've seen with this virus uh, and this epidemic. And so I think that, you know, everyone's opening back up now because they, we're, we are, again, conditioned to, to sort of instinctually believe that when we see the virus go away after it has been ever present, mm-hmm. uh, that we think that it's under control. Mm-hmm. But in this case, this has been in many ways and, and really very, very direct ways, it's been an artificial reduction, if you will. And, and, and by that I mean the, the reduction has nothing to do with the risk later on. In fact, right. if anything, we have done a tremendous job to bring it down,
1: mm-hmm.
2: but we are at an enormous risk at the moment for major outbreaks to happen because despite bringing it down, uh, if we all go back out into the world, we have potentially thousands and thousands of little transmission chains, these little sparks, I think of it, uh, You know, I use the analogy about a forest a lot, mm-hmm. are essentially, Uh, what we've seen so far was all lit by a couple of sparks on the forest edge and so we were able to watch this wave of infections happen you know from afar as they kind of moved inwards now we essentially have this big forest that still isn't burned with lots of potential little sparks all going over all over the place and if we drop a whole bunch of leaves it on it it will just combust you know and that's what the concern is right
0: now right I I just want to clarify oh go ahead justin
1: I mean just to keep to keep on this farce analysis right analogy I I think what we I think people have uh, people are fooling themselves a little bit and I think they're fooling themselves a little bit both the people who are advocating for uh, extended lockdown and the people for advocating for opening up are fooling themselves a little bit the people who are advocating for opening up I think are they are like Michael said, you know, responding in this way we're used to for epidemics that the curve has gone up and gone down, so we must be out of the woods, it must be over, and, and, and it was our actions that made that happen. It wasn't the natural mm-hmm. courses of the disease, but the people who are Drastic actions. Drastic <laughs> actions, right, but the people who, many of the people who are advocating for extended lockdowns seem to be under the impression that if we just lock down a little bit longer, you know, a few more months that maybe mm. we'll be out of the woods. But right. that's and not true either. Away. Yeah, The fuel is there. The sparks are there. And as long as that's the case, we um, are at risk for another epidemic. And we need mm. to go forward. I, and my, my view is we need to go forward really with our eyes open to that, that absent a vaccine that may never come, mm. we're going to mm. have to pay the toll in terms of infection. And the question is not, like, the question is not, do we do that? It's how we do that. And right. how we can do that in such a way that minimizes human suffering to the maximum extent. Yeah, um, I
0: just want to clarify something, though. You, you used the term, uh, the curve has gone down. But it, in my understanding, the curve has flattened, but is not on the way down. As far as when I, when I look at the, the plots, it looks like we've definitely... Uh, the increase, you know, the rate is not increasing every day, but we still are seeing increasing numbers every day, right? So we're not on the way where, uh, like in China, where they're actually on the downward trajectory of the curve, where things are actually coming down every day. We're nowhere close to that. What, is that a true It statement? depends on
1: where you live. The, okay, there's so much. There's so much diversity throughout the country. But, but on a um, whole, as,
0: as a nation, that...
1: As a nation, it's kind of flat, but there's a ton- tons of epidemics. Like the one place... Let's now talk about New York City. So <laughs> okay, there is yeah. one place in the country that might have a legitimate chain claim to have enough immunity to be able to start bringing up their guard a little bit. Mm. Uh, and that's New York City. They, if you, you know, um, assume a reasonable uh, infection fatality ratio of about a half percent, which I think is reasonable given the evidence we have, it might be a little more, it might be a little less, mm. uh, it implies around half the population has been infected. and. Well that's getting to wow. a point where they have a legitimate uh, claim to have, you know, the so-called herd immunity or community immunity, but that doesn't, I mean, the price they had to pay for that <sighs> yeah. was really high. Right. And they're definitely not protect per um, uh, protected um, by, um, they're definitely like not, everywhere and they're protected. I, I'm not claiming that like New York city will never have another outbreak or another, have another mm-hmm. flare up, right. but they can certainly, they certainly have a claim to that. Whereas nowhere else in the country has that. And some places have seen hardly any epidemic at all.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. Well, what happens if the entire country opens up right now what, I mean, what do, what do you predict? Are we going to see, are the numbers just going to skyrocket again?
2: I I think that, you know, if if we all open, I mean, if, A, I don't think we're all going to, I don't think everything's going to go back to normal, you know, across the country. Like, right, of oh, course. This might take a long time, even as things open up. I I do think, you know, handshaking, that might be gone, you know, for a very long time, if not <laughs> mm-hmm. for good. Yeah.
0: Um,
2: so there are certain things that, You know there are real changes that might happen here, Um, but I think uh, you know if let's just if the real question is what happens if everything went back to normal tomorrow, you know that would be the extreme (laughs) example. I think we haven't changed much. You know we haven't even changed much in terms of the numbers who have been infected Um, now, and so we we would really risk massive massive explosion of cases. Um, But what I would say, which is an interesting maybe twist on this, is kind of like New York, where New York may have a claim to actually be approaching something that will lead to partial, substantive partial herd herd immunity, um, uh, is actually the most vulnerable populations in, at least in many of the states. Mm -hmm. We have done a horrific job at protecting nursing homes. Yep. And nursing homes everywhere have had massive outbreaks, and uh, you know we don't know enough about what the immunological protection will be within a nursing home, for example, of people if they've been infected. And but but you know there is this question that I have: if if nursing homes are one of the key populations to protect. Mm -hmm. We've done such a bad job so far that we've let so many people get infected. You know, in some nursing homes, we're seeing 60, 70, 80% cumulative infection rates. Uh, You know, at the end of the day, some of that damage might already be done. And so if things were to go completely back to normal tomorrow, and we had massive outbreaks, there's a chance, actually, that mortality, that some of the Mm -hmm. worst mortality that we're going to see may have already passed in Mm. some ways. I don't think overall across the whole country but in certain regions we might have already gotten over you know in in the worst of ways um you know seeing some massive um, massive numbers of deaths that um are going to make you know when we open back up the risk to those same people might not be as great because they might already have some immunity or of, of course unfortunately might not be with us anymore because of this and so
1: yeah. Uh, while I agree with Mike complete, or Michael completely on that, I, I would say that, like, I'd caution that a mitigated infection fatality ratio in this is still, like, compared to what we usually find acceptable mm-hmm. for an infectious disease, particularly among, um, you know, younger, healthy people, and by younger, I mean, like, middle-aged here, mm-hmm. um, You know, I like it when I can call myself younger in some context. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It's still like far higher than we would generally find acceptable. You know, it's not the case that, you know, so yeah, in, you know, yeah, it might be a tenth the, um, a tenth that of the oldest people, but that's still very, you know, it's Not still acceptable. like one in a thousand, mm-hmm. you know, which, which in, in the United States, we generally find an unacceptable risk of death. Yeah. Yeah. Can, so I, I want to bring that up
2: real quick, because I think, you know, I, I would like to get your opinion, Justin, because um, I, I think about this a lot when um, we know that the distribution of deaths is extraordinarily skewed. And we have a, essentially a, a, he, an ex, a totally intolerable uh, high mortality rate in people above 65 or 70. You know, it's and it only goes up above 85. It's extraordinary. Um, you know, there's a nursing home right here in, in Boston or just north of Boston that just had um, almost 20 percent of its census die. Um, most of those were over over 80 years old. But 54, 56 people died out of 200 something people and so so that mortality rate is extraordinarily high um but we know that uh we know that this is really you know in that it's just so skewed that to this very high um age bracket but we keep talking about um a number you know and i think that this is an important point to start i i would really like to see especially in the media and things you know Mm. that we stop talking about a case fatality rate norm in normal times we if we know that the distribution is super skewed we don't take a mean you know we talk about the skew and and things like that and i do wonder like even saying 0.5% we still know if it's 0.5% most of that is driven by this really high age group and then you know in under 20 years it's super low which i don't think it means we should open up and that there's no danger but what i do think it if we start that conversation going to really talk about the nuances of n- not so subtle nuances of case fatality rates and infection fatality across the age demographics, I think that at least it could allow some more creativity in thinking about how to open up the economy again, because the risk right. profiles are very different.
1: I absolutely yeah. agree. I mean, I think if we're going to go to, I think it is it is useful to talk about that, that baseline number, because it, it tells us sort of. You know, age adjusted right like whenever we do our modeling for like individual the country and stuff we age adjust the the fatality rate because based on counties, even within the US and globally. That's even more important, but Still, I think that baseline number is really important because it tells us where we're working from and so so right like it's let's say uh, in the study we had come out today, like from France, it was it was 0.7% is what is what our estimate is Uh, That tells us, okay, and we know how that's distributed by age. That says, okay, if we could let the epidemic go a little bit and, uh, and maybe we can talk in a bit about why really just letting it go and trying to protect old people is a really bad idea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But let's just assume we let it smolder a bit and I do want to talk know, about that. And, and reduce the, you know, but but like manage to have the risk or a quarter the risk of infection among the oldest people. Like we can figure out like that might that might buy us, you know, point two percent, point three percent in this in the IFR. And which sounds like uh not, you know, like a little bit, but when you're talking about Hundreds of millions of people ultimately infected with the virus by the end of this thing. That's a lot of dead people mm-hmm. That you're avoiding by protecting those people and I and I really think we need to start thinking about our response in terms of these kind of incremental victories in control victories in making the epidemic, you know in from flattening it stem from flattening the curve victories that that um, extend from protecting the most vulnerable populations, victories that come from just getting better at clinical care because we get to under- we start to understand mm-hmm. how the disease progresses better, and hopefully at some point victories from vaccination and treatment, but i don 't think we have to wait for those to potentially turn a disease with you know nearly a percent infection fatality ratio to one it's closer to like one in a thousand. Hmm.
0: Well, let's, let's talk about this more. I, I, um, you know, is there a way to do a more targeted approach when we, when we do, I mean, there was just a long article that a friend sent me today that I, I read about, you know, targeting protecting the elderly, you know, th- that maybe we're approaching this the wrong way with universal lockdowns. That being said, you know, our former uh, podcast host of Epi Counts, uh, Matthew Fox tweeted something that I thought was uh, very salient, where he said, you know, how, can you show me how we could potentially, or how we could protect people who are over 60 in a targeted way when these universal lockdowns still don't seem to be protecting people over 60. So, you know, if this really, um, this, this, uh, this drastic approach that we're taking isn't isn't helping people over 60, how could a more nuanced targeted approach help them so so what do you guys think about that what could we do that could help the economy and um and help the most vulnerable of our population
2: yeah i i think about this all the time and i i think the short answer is it's a really tough question um but i do think you know there the the toll of uh on the economy right now is just so vast that if we took a fraction of what we're losing, you know, if we were able to manage to, to get the economy running again in some way, take just a fraction of that and and really put it into structural changes. Like mm-hmm. I'm not saying, saying testing is the answer and I'm not saying, uh, you know, just social distancing is, I mean like real serious structural changes to nursing homes, to ventilation systems, mm-hmm. to the doorways that go into these nursing homes that trap air, you know, just Mm -hmm. like real structural modifications, whether it's nursing homes or senior living facilities or people's homes and giving supplements. If you're, you know, I think that there are, that that's what's needed because I completely agree with Matt that we have not, um, we've not been able to protect people in probably, the, the most strict um, social distancing shutdown approach that we're going to see wasn't successful. Exactly. Um, so that gives me, like, from my point, I, I see two avenues from there. Either we throw our hands up and we say, well, it's not working anyway, let's start the economy. I don't advocate for that. Um, or we really take this seriously and we say, okay, this didn't work. We learn from it. And instead of just trying to keep pushing on it and pushing on it, we say, what can we do different? And maybe it is... Like you know, real change. We know mm-hmm. that a lot of nursing homes and hospitals, like these, are they're dilapidated. You know, they're very old structures with poor ventilation. And I think that there are other ways to do this or increase PPE. We know in the hospitals that what's been very successful actually has been infection control. From the peop- the physicians who are actually seeing the COVID patients mm-hmm. have some of the lower rates. Of of infections in in many hospitals because they're actually using PPE appropriately.
0: That's interesting.
2: So I think these changes can be made, and we could actually do something about it. We just that a lot of this information doesn't trickle down into the nursing homes and these centers, and you know we're actually seeing it now where I I am in the middle of like a, a lot of the efforts in Massachusetts in some ways to get all the nursing homes tested, and as part of that I've been getting a window into what nursing homes are doing for infection control. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them are really asking for help just with the basics of how to do infection control. They don't have the equipment, the supplies, or the know-how in large part. And that's a big problem. And that's, you know, but those are fixable things.
0: Yeah.
1: So just to go expand on what Michael was saying, and also to um, come back to the forest fire analogy you know, we, we've talked about, you know, how like the current social distancing measures, these very extreme social distancing measures have dampened things down. Not protected everybody, not protected the the, um, the nursing homes, but dampened things down. But, and if we let them go, we would have a giant, epi- things go, we'd have a giant epidemic. Now. But the, the flip side is it is like a forest fire. As long as the fuel is there, if you let all take off the brakes and let things start, and go, the, you have a large epidemic. So completely shutting down has exactly the same effect. You keep the fuel there. Mm. And then the day, and then if, if you think someday you just take the brakes off altogether, you'll get a giant, you know, a giant peak there. You'll get the big fire there.
0: Right.
1: So, and the problem with the big fire is I think it's, it's just, it becomes really hard to protect these vulnerable populations in the huge epidemic. It's just like a large virus fire can jump the firewall or, you know, jump the firewall. If you have, you know, in an uncontrolled epidemic at the peak, sometimes like five to 10% of the population might actually be infected at one time. It becomes extremely hard to keep any population insulated or cordoned off from the, that group. If you just let things go, you have to, to have any chance of success. You have to keep the numbers low. So I so I mean I really think what we need to be aiming for is something akin to a to a controlled burn where we you know it, where we don't actually want to cut off the disease from spreading entirely but we want it to spread at a rate where we can control it and this is both you know so it's like that approach is not just good because it corresponds to opening up the economy a bit and like stepping back from some of these lockdown measures. I think it's good epidemiologically, like, like just thinking about the disease control because absent a vaccine, we have, we have to go through those infections. We have to walk through that, all of that infection and do that slow burn. And the slower we can do it, you know, we need to have it happen, but happen very slowly. So we never exceed our capacity so we can save as many lives as absolutely possible because we have the resources to do so. Wasn't
0: that protecting the whole, them
1: from getting infected, and et etc.
0: Wasn't that the whole logic behind the flatten the curve idea?
1: Yeah, we, yes, it was. And, and I think that's still the right strategy. But I think people didn't quite comprehend exactly how flat we wanted the curve to be and how long <laughs> that think- would take.
0: I think that's and, the problem is that people think, hey, victory, we flattened the curve. Take the take yeah. the foot off the brakes and, now.
1: And and yeah, and things and also I think we were we let we were late in our response, I think, yeah. the first time out. And I think shutting down was I think the right thing to do because we didn't have a plan.
0: Yeah. And
1: we we didn't have it together to go um You know to go forward and and Mm. while i don't think this is true everywhere i think in a lot of the country and a lot of the world in the we have used that time the time in between in a productive manner and do have a plan and maybe do have some shot at keeping things under control do we have a a more open with a more open economy
0: hmm well, let's get into that then. What is the plan? What would what, what
1: is... Michael's doing way, so... a look like he's less convinced. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you
0: all could see on this podcast, the look uh, in Michael's eyes, kind of similar to the way I'm feeling. Um, Optimist,
1: Mike. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I...
0: So... Go on. Oh, no, I was just going to say, just going back to your the forest fire analogy, you know, how do we put out the embers? You know, what do we do?
2: Yeah, I, I... I don't know that we have a plan. I I think, I mean, I guess it depends on how you define a plan. We we have some plan. I don't know if it's a good plan is the thing. Yeah, I mean. Lots of plans. I, I think from my vantage point, which may be my, my, maybe I've gone too far um, these days just because of the role I've been really focused on during this pandemic has been so through the lens of testing. Uh, rather than math modeling and epi, you know, I've gone a little bit further away from. Some aspects, and so from my vantage point though, I see that we have not really done much to, to really prepare us to do uh, what I think is maybe necessary to open things back up, which is at a minimum to be able to know who's infected when. And, um, and there has been, you know, a lot of this has been left to the academics to get going, whether that's academics who are developing new tests, academics who are developing new technologies altogether, doing the modeling or setting up these massive surveillance studies, which really should be government, you know, projects.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, and, And a lot of these projects are being set up, you know, with philanthropic dollars that aren't sustainable, for example. So I think even these most basic pieces, I don't see the right, the right, Entities jumping in that are that are really mm-hmm. supposed to be guarding the public health and I don't see this as something that um, Was supposed to be uh, you know that, that I, I don't know that that Academics are the ones who are really supposed to be the one
1: yeah. uh,
2: Doing all of this, you know versus I, I'm I thinking many of us are willing to and really? because as we see that This is a place where we can use our, our expertise and jump in and do it, but but for real sustainable solutions to protect the public health and protect from massive outbreaks in the future, I would have liked to see the last couple of months be integrated more with with you know the the, the real the real systems that are going to be set in place and I haven't seen any re- any real systems being set in place to to do good surveillance It's been yeah. a hodgepodge of observational studies getting set up and Academics going out on the sidewalk with, with serology tests, you know, pricking people's blood. You know, it's it's been, um, you know, it's not been a coordinated governmental effort. I think. So yeah, I,
1: are, I would can, I I would say I mean I, I there's nothing Michael said to disagree with in term, but uh, I would say that there are bright spots. For instance, yeah. Utah has done an, a, you know an impressive job. You know they quickly we're testing more people per capita than South Korea. They seem to have had success with less aggressive social distancing than the rest of the country and high testing. So, you know, I don't think it is universal across the board. I think it's a hard thing for people to realize, and maybe this has exposed a weakness in our system, that in the United States, we have, the, the federal government has almost no power. Or you know, direct authority when it comes to public health response. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all of those decisions are made of state, at the state levels, and within many states, the state itself has actually very little power, and it's the counties or city, you know municipalities that do all the work. So, you know, within our country, we we don't have one response. We have, you know, a hundred responses yeah. or five hundred responses to this right. outbreak, and. Some of those are, pro- some of those I think are pretty good, but you know, certainly not all, and certainly not at the uniform and universal level that we need to really approach this thing in a considered and yeah. uh, intentional manner. Gotcha.
0: Okay, well, there are a lot of reasons that the response hasn't been as ideal as we would like, or unified as we would like. Um, and we're not gonna get into that. This is not a politics, podcast this is a science podcast so i'm going to flip the way that we're talking about this and ask you guys if we could do what we need to do what is the best way to approach this what do we need to do to safely reopen the country obviously i don't mean a, a complete one day everything's back to normal i mean safely slowly roll out a reopening of the country what do you guys think needs to happen And we talked about testing, let's expand upon that and and what else needs to be done. Um, I think
2: from a, you know, let's take testing out of, not not talk about directly about testing, but I think one thing that could be done is what we were about to experience is a large number of natural experiments. Mm -hmm. And so one thing I think that, because not everyone's gonna do it right and not everyone's gonna do it wrong, Maybe everyone will do it wrong. We don't know. But, but you know, I mean, so, I'm not the optimist. No, but I mean, the point <laughs> is, there's is no right, is what I should say. There's just, there's just what we're all going to try to do. And, um, and there's going to be a lot of different opinions, and none of them are wrong, and, and none of them are 100% right. Mm-hmm. And so I think what, one of the best things we could do right now, when we still have the, um, the, ba- the opportunity for baseline measurements, if you will, is we we start monitoring in a really systematic way, what different counties are doing, different institutions, even within an when, within an institution at Harvard. Maybe we we measure what the business school is doing versus what the School of Public Health. They might have different um, different uh, ways that they decide to open up. Mm. And I think we can do this at a city level. Of course, we're already seeing the heterogeneity. Uh, Georgia's opening up now. Uh, you know, we want to try to get some some um, matched states, if you will, temperature wise and these kinds of things. But I think if we treat this like a really robust, massive natural experiment and monitor it in real time, like we do a clinical trial, we look for safety signals that we have predetermined and we have people reviewing this all the time. And we actually create a, a system to do this and, and, and a monitoring system. Embody using the state laboratories and state departments of public health, perhaps to really make this a big experiment that we can learn from in real time and put the brakes on certain places and accelerate others as we learn
0: but don 't we run the risk of just finding that the states that are that are having the most um, extreme uh, measures are going to see the fewest cases and the ones with the most lax measures are going to see the least uh, you know how do we, how do we use that information to say? Well, uh, you know, this is the I, approach that,
1: that makes the most sense. Well, I think we learn as we go. So, so, so a couple of thoughts, right? Like when, right, Mike, Michael's exactly right. Like the, you know, like when you go back and you try to figure out sort of what's working and what's not working, it's really hard because everybody went to the same place really fast on the front end. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of heterogeneity within the country and even the places that didn't have formal stay at home orders. There are huge organic changes in and people's behavior. Uh, but the you know so as there's going there seems to be like there's going to be a lot more heterogeneity and people come out in the back end and that does lead to a um, all these natural experiments. And, and you're right, Brian. I, I mean I think what we expect is the places with the more lack measure, lax measures lax measures will see more cases and the places with the more strict measures will see less. But it's not like, I mean, there's still a lot of, there's still a lot of intervention to be done and a lot of course changing to be done in this, I think. Like, I don't think it's the case that like, you know, so take Georgia, for example. I don't think it's the case if Georgia has a really huge resurgent outbreak. I don't think it's the case they're just going to sit and let it happen. Mm-hmm. They'll do something. Hmm. But yeah, but, but, uh, but uh, anyway, also, but I'm, I'm going to be willing to take the bait that Michael Didn't quite take. I'll I'll, I'll lay out what I like think is actually a maybe. Yeah, here we go. Give me some concrete. So I think that we, you know, I think we start by every state or every, you know, you know, place should start by actually making an assessment of like what resource they have to, you know, respond to cases. Like not just say something like, oh, cases need to go down for end days or something like that. Mm -hmm. How many cases a day can we, particularly if like contact tracing or something like that is gonna be a key part of our response. How many cases a day can we reasonably deal with? And, And then decide, okay, we need to get to that number before we start stepping things back with some margin of error, right? And then you move slowly. Right you have to have this tested nicely, i mean that's like it's like just the low hanging fruit it's the cheap thing to do yeah, I want to talk really about need to do you um, need to talk even about if' that more
0: after I hear your plan <laughs> right?
1: however however well it works it's you know you do it okay. uh but you know you you start you know whatever your local priorities are, maybe you you know I know some place some people I've talked to like they're their areas are really like we need to reopen schools other places are like schools can wait it needs to be small was, businesses right right, right. but y- you move slowly and deliberately so mm-hmm. that you also you're not just learning from this global nat- natural experiment you're learning from your local natural experiment
0: yeah
1: and then and you you prioritize what's important to open and you recognize that it might be a year or more before you can like have people get in the stadium for a rock concert hmm. or something like that, you know that really is something that might be far in the future, as wow. hard as that is to admit yes. uh if we want to keep the you know if we want to take the strategy of like the middle path and, and a and a slow smolder. I, I I'm sure that day will come like i i believe there is another another side like i don't think this is this isn't a permanent state of affairs but
0: do we need to it's have a, it's a marathon vaccine to not a sprint. get there, though i mean to uh, have it depends concerts. on how the immunity
1: works okay but i know i mean it will get there with natural immunity eventually it just might take a really long time we'll we get see, there a lot quicker with a vaccine okay
0: I mean, I think that's what our listeners are really trying. That's what they want to hear. You know, when can we do things like go to a concert, go to a sporting event? What is it going to take to get us there? Um, And, you know, you hear so much on the news that until we have a vaccine, that ain't happening. And then you see other uh, news outlets saying, realistically, we're three or four years from a vaccine. So, you know, you do the math there and it sounds like either we're not going to be having large events for four years or we're just going to start having
1: them and we're going to just deal with the massive infection spike that's going to happen. So, I mean, it's, it's a amount of infections, but also we just don't, I mean, Michael knows more about the immunology than I do, but like, I don't think we know quite enough about the immunology yet to fully answer that question. That's even what if I we really want Michael to talk Math about, math about it. So yeah, what, I'll, I'll kick it over.
0: What do we know about the immunology? Are well, people immune after they get infected?
2: Uh, well, we don't. I mean, we don't know, but yeah. we assume uh, we assume that this is not going to be the virus that breaks the the immunology textbook. You know, so therefore, I mean, what I mean by that is we assume that people will be immune to some mm-hmm. extent. But immunity, um, you know, a lot of people are just hearing about this idea of immunity and antibody mediated immunity for the first time. Yep even scientists who don't normally work in immunology, like the, maybe for a lot of them, it's the most they've all, ever thought about immunity. And, um, and uh, you know, I, I think that we have to, immunity is always on a spectrum. People are always moving in and out of immune states um, for different viruses and different infectious diseases. So, um, you know, to talk about it, we, we should probably stop talking about it as a bot, as a population. Binary. About a bi- exactly at a binary level. Cause there are actually a lot of there's a gradient. And so so for example, if you get infected right now and you've never been infected, there's a good chance this virus will really scream through your body and and you know, you might not feel deadly sick, but you you would probably feel run down and it's eating away at your tissue and, and then your body fights it off and you develop an immune response. If you get this, let's say your immunity then wanes, but doesn't go. You know, if you're really protected in a month from now, you might get exposed and it might do nothing. But let's say a year from now, Mm -hmm. we start talking about waning immunity, and I can already see the headlines. You know, first measurements of people one year after their COVID uh, experience. You know, and their their antibodies have waned. I want to preempt that discussion now and say this. (laughs)
0: It's going to happen.
2: Um, exactly, it's going to happen. Waning antibodies doesn't mean no doesn't mean it's going to keep declining linearly.
0: Mm-hmm. These
2: the B cells that create our antibodies, they they make this huge burst, right? And, and that's essentially what we're we're creating. We're measuring the burst right now. And almost everyone on Earth who's been infected, we're still measuring these antibodies that are being produced peripherally um, in in plasma cells that are circulating in our body. Those continuously die off, though naturally. This happens with every virus, Mm. and and some of them migrate into the into the bone marrow. Mm -hmm. And so what we'll see, we see, and I know that people can't really see my hand, but I'm I'm showing a slope that's declining and then sort of leveling off. And so beautiful slope, Michael. What's that? (laughs) It's a beautiful slope. (laughs) So (laughs) I wish you all could see it. um, That these antibodies are going to wane. We don't know how long they're going to wane, but what we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking is that the measurements that we take today yeah. and a month from now and a month from then are going to be the trajectory that somebody's immune system stays on. A lot of times right. people will fall quickly over a number of months and then mm-hmm. flatten out. And that's like right. when your bone marrow plasma cells really start pumping out your their antibodies, that's your sort of becomes your basal level of antibodies. Mm-hmm. And then the question is, are do you do you, does your set point give you a level that's protective or not? And you might continue waning a little bit from that point, but, you, but some people might have a basal level that does not provide sufficient true sterilizing immunity, and some people will. So we, we have to figure out what that means, and that's going to take months to really work out exactly mm-hmm. what these values are.
1: And it, yeah. just to take some of what Michael's was saying to, to the population mm-hmm. level. Right. It's like when we start thinking about that distribution of immunity, it's not like so much <laughs> the overall number, it's, it's how they're distributed for the population. Like, no matter how we get there, at some point, we're going to be to a point where the um, we're going to be at a point where most people who are older have seen this virus and seen it multiple times. So even if they get infected, they're probably not going to get very sick. Hmm. And, younger peop- and the people who are seeing it for the first time, who are seeing it like we're seeing it in the pandemic, are all quite young. Hmm. And we know already that those quite young people really don't get yeah, okay. sick that often. There'll right. still be a few people who, who get really sick and die. We, we, we've seen that happen already. But it, it will really change the picture of the virus not just because more people are immune, but because the people who are susceptible are the people at lowest risk. Huh. Getting there could be a very long road. Yeah. So I, you know, I don't want to like, put this forth as a magic bullet, but you know, the, the, there is a point. Like, we don't know, for instance, what a, if, if you dropped uh, one of the currently circulating human coronaviruses in a complete you know previous in a completely naive population what that mortality would look like mm. it could be exactly the same as this we, we just don't know because in any population we've ever looked at anybody above a certain age like these viruses are ubiquitous anybody above mm. a certain age has um has seen it cool. and probably seen it several times so we you know so there is a point after where the, that distribu- that population distribution of immunity as will will change the way this looks to us. Right. When it's not a novel virus anymore. When it's not a novel virus. It will yeah. not always be a novel virus. Okay. The, the hard question that we just don't know the answer to is what it's going to take to get there.
0: Right. And, and I think... I just want to clarify, because I think people listening to this might uh, be under the impression that what you're saying is, therefore, we need to develop herd immunity. You know, I mean, the, the super naive argument that we need to just let this uh, infection run its course so that the population can can develop herd immunity. I think what you're saying is that the immunity needs to be acquired for the population, over a long controlled period of time so that we don't have just an, an, you know, incredible surge in in deaths and suffering,
1: right? Right, we need to get to this distribution of immunity, but we need, you know, we have the ability, like this is, I think a note I I said, a a kind of hopeful note I gave in the first, uh, in a previous one is like, we at this point, maybe for the first time in human history, have the ability to potentially manage how that process happens. Hmm. Almost every pre, as far as I know, every previous time we've encountered a disease like this, we didn't understand what was going on. A lot of people just died and probably nobody even quite realized what what was happening or why. And we know what's happening. We know why. We can potentially make specific tools like vaccines to help it, but we also can manage the process in a way that previous generations could not and i think we can we yeah. should see it as a victory you know as, as hard as this is we should see it as a victory that we're able to do that
0: right um, yeah we we've seen the natu- at, yeah. i was just going to say we've seen the natural experiment play out before about what happens when you let a, a disease burn through a, you know a global pandemic without any ways to mitigate it. And that was called the Black Plague, right? <laughs> you know, and where, what, what percent of the world population died? I don't, it was a very high number. Um, so, you know, eventually herd immunity was acquired, but that was not the ideal way to do it. So- I, th- uh, I
1: think a, ba- a better example would be uh, would be the uh, 1918 influenza pandemic there. All right, it is, okay. The, the, the Black Pag change went away for very different reasons than herd immunity or anything like <laughs> All right, fair enough. Um,
0: so ahead,
2: I, I wanted to give a, a more clear, so you had asked before, because I think a lot of people are really wondering about the, the whole notion of serological tests and antibodies. Yes, let's
0: talk about this, yeah. Immunity. Mm-hmm.
2: And I think, you know, I gave a convoluted answer a minute ago, got into like <laughs> antibody distributions and things. The point is, we, we don't we don't know exactly what's going to happen. We do believe that most people, particularly younger people, you know, we don't know what's going to happen in the elderly because they don't develop good immune responses in general. Um, But we do believe that most people will have some period of time where they are, where they're probably pretty well protected from this virus. And the antibody tests that we're doing, uh, there are going to be a lot of them on the market, you know, so people are going to have to be cautious a little bit about what tests they're getting um but we're going to find out that most people will develop antibodies not everyone but that's normal actually there's always going to be some small number of people who don't develop antibodies after they get at least detectable antibodies using our assays that they after they get infected um but then what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to try to interpret through um through human studies um uh, observational studies we're gonna have to try to figure out what what does it mean to have, uh, in this case, the readout is antibodies. So what does the the antibody readout mean? And does it it, uh, actually mean that somebody is completely immune, or if you're serologically positive, meaning you have antibodies, um, does it mean that you're just kind of protected and you maybe personally will be protected from severe disease, for example, but maybe if that virus lands in your uh, respiratory tract, if you have decent antibodies, maybe it will not grow so much that you actually get sick yourself and feel ill. But what we don't know, and this I think is one of the is really the big unknown that we should be talking about, is not so much is that person going to get sick again, but is the virus going to be able to grow in that person, uh, in that person's upper mm-hmm. respiratory tract in a way that will still allow them to, to transmit it. And not I would sure. say that that's something we're just not sure about. Um, right. In particular, we're not sure, you know, maybe in the first couple months or first six months after infection, maybe people have what we call sterilizing immunity, where, where if that virus lands anywhere in their body, more or less, you know, they'll, they'll kill it off without right. it replicating. Yeah. But maybe after six months, somebody's immune system like sort of wanes enough that then the virus can start landing in the respiratory tract, and they can actually transmit it again, even uh, if they don't that's... feel particularly sick.
0: Right. So they may not get sick, but they can still spread it.
2: Exactly. Absolutely. That that's, that's a that's a big Oof. concern here. Yeah, and that's that a big
1: uh, a big question for like when we look at these models and talk about herd immunity. Like all these conversations around herd immunity are assuming that there's somehow this permanent sterilizing immunity. Um, which, which I think, uh, my, I don't know if Michael agrees, but I think, you know, looking in the like six months to a year time frame, probably is a really good bet. But after that, all bets are off. Other coronaviruses, other human coronaviruses, don't cause that type of permanent sterilizing immunity. And as we think about what we need to get to the other side, as it were. Or even what the prospects for a vaccine actually are, we need mm-hmm. to get a handle on whether or not that type of immunity is a realistic possibility.
0: Yeah, that's very daunting sounding because it sounds like, you know, even if we had, and I want to, we're gonna have this discussion, but I want to, I want you to clarify the the difference between virology and serology. Just you know, make that really clear and why both types of testing are important to move forward. Um, but, but I think what you're saying is that even if we had really accurate, accurate serology testing and we knew who had antibodies and who didn't, that doesn't necessarily mean that those people are, are free to move about the country the way they did before um, and, and not spread the disease and not get sick. You know, that, that's pretty scary because that means you know, testing isn't the only impediment. It's knowing what the test means that's a problem.
2: That's, that's exactly right. And that's why, personally, I advocate. You now, I, I know that there's a lot of different tests that are being developed for mm-hmm. antibodies, these serological tests. Mm-hmm. And these are tests that measure the amount of antibodies to different proteins of the virus that somebody has formed. Um, I, there's Because of ease, more than anything else, in getting these tests through the FDA approval process, things like that, a lot of tests that are coming onto the market now, are binary. They just tell you if you do or don't have antibodies. Mm-hmm. And um, my, I have a real concern that we might go that way, just because, frankly, it's you, most people personally just want to know, do I have antibodies or not? Right. And the FDA approval process is actually a bit easier if you're not trying to give, if you're not claiming to be able to give a really highly quantitative result, mm-hmm. and you're just trying to say, yes, this person has antibodies or no. It's much easier to get that approval process through. And so um, my concern is that we might see manufacturers start to build these assays for a serological tests that are just binary. And it might really and have
0: different thresholds, potentially.
2: It, it could It could try to get at thresholds in the long like they, they could mm. try to do that. But I think to really learn enough about this virus, we have to have a lot of testing done that's based on quantitative results so we can mm. understand what those thresholds are. Mm-hmm. We don't want them suppressed, the We right. don't want the actual quantitation suppressed inside I of a gotcha. somewhere yeah and um so uh, but uh, so, so i you know i hope that 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 these values end up becoming you know more widely available as we start to epidemiologists and immunologists as we as more testing happens um to make that clarity, like, to clarify what you asked before yeah all the tests that have been done, you know, more or less up until the last few weeks, for the most part, were really, we were so focused on virology tests. Mm -hmm. These are the tests that are looking and asking the question, is somebody infected today? Do they have the virus in them today? And and the tests look for the virus. Mm -hmm. The antibody tests ask the question, uh, does somebody have a signature of having been infected with the mm-hmm. virus in the past or maybe currently. So it's mm. a more of a cumulative look of somebody's past exposure history up until the present day, or really up until about a week ago. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's what antibodies do, because they take about a week or two to, to really come up after somebody's been infected. And so gotcha. so they ask really different things. One's saying, are you infected today? And that goes away. The moment you're no longer infected, you become negative again. Mm-hmm. But that, doesn't, that negativity doesn't mean you didn't have the virus. Um, right. Even if you didn't capture the person, you know they might have still. Have, and so antibodies come in, and you know I kind of think of them as saving the day. You can look at antibodies, and you can capture all these people who were infected that yeah. you didn't. You have get a in.
0: record. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that's a really important point. And and before we started recording, you were saying uh, briefly that you know just looking at virology without the serology only gives you a one-time cross-sectional snapshot of who today is infected, or at least, you know, and, and we can talk about <laughs> Justin also said something interesting that, you know, it may take three days for your positive virology test to show up after you've been infected. So it's not even who's infected today, it's who's infected three days ago um, and today. Uh, but, but, you know, if you really want to know cumulatively how, what proportion of a population has has been infected, you need to get, you have to have serology as well. Um so can you talk about how you briefly about how you know the combination of the two is what's necessary for really understanding a picture of a population's infection rate and
1: um when it's safe to move forward. I mean I, I think they should the tests should be really seen as tools, uh, extremely useful tools, but but imperfect tools. And they, you know, and the tools are for different things. So at the population level, the serology serologic tests, they're, they're the appropriate tool for measuring overall immunity. At the individual level, they're the appropriate tool for measuring, you know, potential, whether you have ever been infected, but really potential future risk. With all the caveats about us not really knowing what the correlates of immunity, et cetera, are yet as well. But the, you know, so they're all about that sort of, you know, cumulative State of the system and personal state. The virology tests, the virologic tests, they're more targeted at right, they're telling you what's going on now. So if you want to know, is this person right here likely to be infectious mm-hmm. and potentially transmit the virus to somebody else, the um, virologic test is is the test you want there. With right. the with, as you were hinting at, with the the caveat that it's, you need to be very clear about what it's telling you. If you test somebody really soon after infection, uh, after they've been infected, they'll probably, they're almost definitely test negative, is what, you know, uh, is what we found. And, you know, it's, and that doesn't mean that they won't test positive later and potentially transmit the virus. Right. It yeah. also, though, it does probably mean under normal circumstances, if you haven't done anything exceptional, to like aid them in transmitting the virus, they may not transmit at that point mm-hmm. because they're not shedding in a detectable amount of virus, but they're definitely not, you know, it's definitely not the case that they can't shed the virus in the future. But in it is telling days. us, yeah. yeah, in a few days, yeah. but it is telling us something about whether the virus is there and stuff. So it's a very different tool that serves mm-hmm. a very different purpose, both at the individual level telling us whether or not this person, you know, to the best we can tell whether or not this person is potentially a transmitter, but also the population telling at sort of giving us a sense of who the active trans, how many active transmitters there are at right. this particular moment.
0: So to really get a picture of what's going on in a, in a particular location, you need to know how many people are actively transmitting the virology and you need to know how many people were infected and may potentially big, big potential there, um, have immunology uh, because they have the antibodies, right? It's, it's both, a, it's a combination of the right. two that and, lets and, you know
1: and how, uh, the, what the thing, burden of you, Right. And which to use and how to use them is totally driven by what question you're actually trying to right. answer.
0: Well, we're trying to answer when can we reopen the, the economy. <laughs> That's what we're trying to answer. Um, but yeah, okay. I mean... That's one. That's one question.
2: But from an epidemiological perspective, you know, uh, other questions are like currently. Uh, one thing is how do we open the economy. One mm-hmm. thing is where to where to place resources to, yeah. to do so, which which part falls in the same same broad basket. And and I think one of the areas, you know, that um, uh, I'll give I'll give this one example of where the two really can shine together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, uh, again, if we go back to nursing homes, there's this program uh, in Massachusetts that we were talking about earlier before the show, but there's a, the program is to test every nursing home in Massachusetts um, for what has been called a baseline test uh, for, viro- for virology, not for immunological metrics. But, you know, so this, I think, is not a smart idea. Um, there's, uh, there's not a great reason to do baseline testing for the virus in every nursing home, uh, over a period of like four or five weeks or so, because, um, how do you interpret if a nursing home has, uh, for example, 13% of its residents and staff positive, how do you interpret that with just the virus? You don't know if the virus is sort of on the downslope or, or rising in that nursing home and so you don't because of that you don't really know how to allocate resources to that nursing home Mm -hmm. and serology can come in if you do paired serology looking for antibodies in all these people at the same time that you go and get that cross section uh, and you find 13% uh, uh, positive but you only find 8% serologically positive then that means that the virus is swiftly coming into this place. Mm -hmm. But if you do that, if you look and you find 13% positive virus and 70% positive serologically, then maybe if you have really limited resources, you can divert them elsewhere for surveillance because this place has pretty much, its epidemic is on the downswing and it's almost gone. So so. I I think that that's a place where we can really marry the two and use
0: them well. Mm -hmm. It's a good example. And
1: I think both are critical for making decisions about when to open, when to close down, and how to respond. So to, to, to just take Michael's example, right, if you go and see 13% positive, if you go and see 13% positive, it might be time to like shut down that place and um, shut down that nursing home and bring in new staff. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's, uh, right, because that's a lot of people out there transmitting. And, and if you have a huge amount of people transmitting, you need to take immediate action probably uh, in terms of social distancing or something else to, to, like, try to get things under control quickly. Sure. Whereas so the tell you the, if
0: the fire's burning really hard. Right, fire's or, burning really hard. Right? And then whereas the yeah.
1: serolo- serology is telling you whether the fire is likely to come back. Do you have to be extra vigilant at this place for future outbreaks? Or can you, you know, potentially shift resources elsewhere?
0: Right. But I think the point Michael's trying to make is that if this is five weeks of testing of each nursing home, by the time you get to the fifth week, the the nursing home you tested in the first week that had 2% infection rate may have a completely different infection rate five weeks later. So that baseline cross-sectional look at infection rate is not necessarily useful in the long term. Right. Is that right. a if, you, if
2: you're, if you're not using any serology, then I would say what you have to do in that case to really make it worthwhile is you actually have to go back to that same nursing home mm-hmm. week after week. To week under-
0: after week. Right. Which is very resource intensive. Yeah.
2: We're doing it with a few, but you know, just to do, just to go into a, maybe 13 nursing homes that we're looking at in Massachusetts week after week is extraordinarily resource intensive versus doing, you know, serology plus virology and baseline for
1: right. I would say we could, you know, I think we can probably I think we should be thinking about putting more on people themselves for that. Uh you know, in flu in flu studies, we often don't use the MP swabs, you know, the ones that go way up and kind of mm-hmm. hurt, but use uh swabs of the nares and like just the, the tip of the inner part of the nose and the throat and get almost as good results if not better. Hmm. And people can do that themselves. Wow. Um, and so we could, you know, I think it's, it would make sense to start, um, thinking about strategies, creative strategies where people can you know, <clears throat> do some of this testing themselves and stuff and maybe make some of this less hmm. uh, resource intensive. Yeah, sure. We're actually working on that now. We're developing
2: these at-home kits where people swab the front of their nose. That's they awesome. take a drop of blood and put it on a blood spot and they mail it in.
0: Uh, yeah. And how long till they get results?
2: Well, ideally, we could get them results you know, the moment from the time they mail that back. If it's overnight, we could get them results the next day. Next day. Awesome. Cool.
0: All right. Well, we don't have that much time left. So I wanted to make sure that this has been a fascinating conversation that we could talk about forever. Um, testing, I think is just, and we probably will talk about it forever. Um, but I, you know, I said in the intro that we would talk a little bit about, um, you know, some of the ways that we know to keep ourselves and our families safe now that we know a little bit more about disease transmission. So, um, you know we've talked we've covered this in the past three episodes a little bit about what we know you know should we wear masks should we um but i you know i think we're at a point where we now it's the general acceptance is that masks are a good idea at least to prevent yourself from spreading to others if you're asymptomatic um but you know that being said there's still all sorts of questions about you know the right course of action you know some people following the recommendations out there are Extremely strict, barely leaving their homes, or they're wearing their masks even while they're walking out in the open air with few people around. Um, while others are becoming a little bit more lax over time, you know, as they're seeing, you know, been in the house for two months and nothing's happening, so maybe I can kind of ease up a little. So, just wanted to ask you some questions about that. That I know you guys are not virologists per se, but um, I think that you probably have some expert opinions on things like. You know should you be wearing a mask all the time when you're outside of your house or is that overkill
1: i mean personally like i can tell you what i do if i'm sure you know if nobody's within like around 12 feet of me or anything like that i i don't i don't wear my
0: face right um, I don't either when I'm walking around and there's no one around me.
1: Right. Yeah, but as soon as but I always have it with me. Yes. If I see someone coming it. as much for dem- their benefit as mine, mm-hmm. I put it on. If I'm gonna, if I'm in an area where it's kind of crowded anyway, I kind of tend to wear it then too. Sure. But sure. you know, I yeah, so I mean that's what I do and I think that's reasonable and I think it is reasonable to take a um cut. you know a uh like a sort of you know thoughtful personal approach. Mm-hmm. What I would caution against is sort of the herd mentality. Herds okay. keep coming up, but here, uh, you know, I feel like it's kind <laughs> of all just so, some, somewhat. This is like kind of like the stock market. You kind of want to be doing the opposite of what everyone else is doing. Uh, but <laughs> so if you know the um, if you know you see a lot of people you know, things are opening up around you. You see a lot of people relaxing their social distancing at this point in the epidemic. That may mean, that's, that's when you want to wear your mask. That might mean that you need to be increasing how careful you are because other yeah. people aren't. Very good um, point. If, if everybody in your community is, you know, for the most part, following all the rules, I mean, you should too, don't take advantage of them, but mm-hmm. it, you know, it, you may be, a, you may be a little safer. I mean, you know, if we look at the, if you drill down on the epidemiology of this, the the communities that are getting hardest hit are, you know, communities where people have jobs and things they have to do and household structures where it's really hard for them to follow the rules, you know, our, you know, our, our frontline healthcare, you know, our frontline essential workers Mm -hmm. in much of the country are like, actually like, you know minimum wage workers at the convenience right. store they're not just like doctors and nurses absolutely and important those point. communities are getting really hard hit because they're not able to you know social distance mm-hmm. in the same way so you know if you're in one of those communities you know to the extent you're able to take the highest level of personal protective measures you probably should mm-hmm um, if you're in, you know, if you're in an area where most people are able to telecommute, nobody's going outside of their house and stuff like that, you know, it's not, it's going, there's going to be less disease around. Mm -hmm. Still be careful, keep that disease from going around. I'm not saying not to, but Mm. you know, that, that's, I mean, that's kind of the facts of the matter.
0: Yeah. Um, what about, you know, I mean, I've been reading a lot about Outdoor versus indoor environments. I mean, it seems pretty clear that when you're in an indoor environment with a lot of people around, that's probably the least safe place you can be. That's where you definitely want to be wearing a mask, using your, you know, hand sanitizer, washing your hands right afterwards. Um, but you know, outdoors, I feel like there's a lot more question about about the safety of being outdoors, you know, with or without a mask on. I mean, you, you see a lot of, at least pop culture. Um, Uh, pieces about whether you should be wearing a mask while jogging or biking. To me, that sounds crazy. I'm just I don't know how you can jog, how you can exercise with a mask on. Um, I think these personally think the smarter idea is to just jog and try to stay away from anyone else as you're jogging. And if you can't, then you shouldn't be jogging in that environment. But I mean, what what is your take on exercise with a mask?
2: I I think, you know, being outside right now, um, Mm. I would say that you know you don't know who you're going to be around, and mm-hmm. and I think the if you're a young person, uh, and you're you know you very well you might have picked up the virus and not know it, and I mm-hmm. think um, there there needs to be some balance. But um, one of the things that strikes me if I go and walk uh, around the pond near my house, for example, mm-hmm. um, you know there's a lot of older people who are very scared of this virus. I might personally not be that scared for my own personal health, um, but I'm not a 75-year-old man. Right. And I think for that reason alone, it's very important for people if they are going to be going out into public outside. Mm-hmm. It's really important, you know, for no other reason but just to be conscious about the people who are around you. It's not about your personal health. This whole thing is about yeah. public health. And I think they that person doesn't know if you've been coughing, you know, and so right. it can create extreme anxiety if you're walking by somebody on the sidewalk, so I think you know it's not a hard thing to wear a mask yeah. if you're going outside, put it on is okay. is my take on it. If you have a huge yard behind your house and it's your yard, great, don't wear a mask I think mm-hmm. you know, not, I don't anticipate that this virus is going to be floating, you know. Fifty feet away from you and infecting somebody else. Right. Um, but I do think if you're walking outside and there's anyone else, like just just wear the mask. I, I think you know it's, yeah. better wise, it's better for public health. Infectious disease-wise, it's better for public health. You know, from an anxiety of your neighbors' perspective.
1: Mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, and I mean that's what I'm saying. It's like if there's no one, literally no one around, or no mm-hmm. one within, like, and you can sort of guarantee that, then it might be okay. But yeah, absolutely, right. And I, you know, certainly in in where I live, like back to runners, I live next to a park. And you know, like if if there you're you know you're the lone person running through the park at six a.m., you know the um, the masks, yeah, yeah, probably aren't a big deal. But you know, I know on a nice day here. You know, we. You know, I. There are hundreds of people running in the park, mm, wow. and they're getting close together. And you're sort of giving. I, I, I saw an article like showing the the trail of the, trail, the particles trail, yeah. and stuff. <laughs> yeah, basically. Although it was the a invisible simulation. Invisible trail. You're, yeah, the simulation invisible trail that say you leave behind you when you run. So if so, it's very easy if we if we all sort of collectively take the, oh, it's no big deal. Mm -hmm. It's very easy to get into a state where suddenly it is a big deal, you know, like you have a bunch of people running, you know, and then you have older people going for walks and stuff like that. And it's Mm -hmm. hard to give distance and stuff like that. And you can very easily get into a state where those transmissions can happen. So I think, you know, be aware of what's around you. And, and if you are going to a place like where there are going to be other people, yeah, wear your mask. Okay. Well, you know, one thing is
0: when we're talking about the outdoor environment that I, I've been meaning to ask you both for two podcasts now, but you, you hear a lot that UV light kills the virus. Is, is this a true statement? Is this, you know, if, you're, if, if it's a sunny day, are you less at risk for the virus infecting you?
2: uv light can kill viruses if it's really intense you know it has to be intense i don't think i mean it can if you keep a a clear water bottle Mm -hmm. on top of uh, a tin roof in nicaragua (laughs) you know for for a couple of days it's going to kill everything that's inside i wouldn't drink that water
1: and
2: uh (laughs) You know, but but short of that, no, I don't think you know. I don't think we are anticipating that the sunlight is going to stop me from mm-hmm. being able to transmit to you. But in the lab, like we do use UV lights to help um, to help uh, disinfect things for sure. It's just not. It's pretty intense UV light. <laughs>
1: Okay, I, mean, I, I had a more flippant answer, which was that UV light will kill you eventually too, Brian, <laughs> <Yeah>. as well. <laughs> well it's I, just a matter of how long. For right? the it, record,
0: it, wasn't uh, saying that we shine it inside our bodies. I was just talking no, about I mean, surfaces right, like, in the outdoors. Right, yeah. The
1: sun, you know, the UV light causes mutations in our body. Eventually that causes trouble for us too. Right. It's just not going That's long term. You know, right, that's long term, but yeah. it's like it will kill the virus. But will it kill the virus before it infects another person? That's a different
0: question. Yeah, interesting. Okay. Um, all right. Last question I'm gonna ask you guys before we should probably wrap this up. But you know, I think one of the things I'm seeing uh, clearly, I have a vested interest in getting some exercise here. But I, I think a lot of people are interested in this. Um, you know, some of the more reasonable states—reasonable well, is a loaded term—but some of the more, um, let's say, uh, cautious states in terms of their reopening plan, like um, the state I happen to live in, Illinois are moving to uh, a next phase, which is slowly reopening um, small businesses or small gyms, for example, where, um, you know, classes are 10 people or less. So, you know, what what do you guys think? Is that safe? (laughs) I guess I'll just ask you straight up. Is that safe to attend an exercise environment, you know, where there's 10 other people working out with you?
2: I wouldn't. I mean, you wouldn't. I, I think that exercising, you know, is,
0: is going to be expelling hard. a lot of particles there. What's up? You're going to be expelling a lot of particles while you're exercising. Exactly. Yeah. I
2: mean, you're breathing. I mean, I can't imagine a time when during an infectious course, if you are infectious, you know, and you don't know it yet, uh, and you're exercising, breathing hard, you know, it, it is definitely a time when you could transmit. I don't mm-hmm. know of any good data that shows it necessarily, mm-hmm. but, um, physiologically, that would be what I would assume would happen. Mm-hmm. And I,
1: I just, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take the risk.
0: Gotcha.
1: And, and, and I think the 10, you know, the 10 or 5 or something, it sounds like, it, you know, it sounds like a small number, but it's like, is that 10 or 5 changing every class? You know, right. is it like reassorting every time you go? Is right. it, what are those people doing out? out- out of that. it You could very easily create a very large network, mm-hmm. um, connected network on which the virus could transmit just by having that small class. But, right. you know, that being said, I think, you know, this gets to the whole idea of, like, you know, miti- you know finding ways to mitigate and, right. you know, for things that we-
0: Acceptable have, risk.
1: Acceptable risk that we find important. So. Mm-hmm. You know, right, like, right, and like, for instance, you and Michael may prioritize exercise differently. Um, Let's not make any
0: judgments here. Right. No one can see us on this podcast. Right, yeah. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, no one can see. Right. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to say who it looks like. <laughs> but uh, um, the. Uh, um, but, you know, like, I, I do think we should we should we should always try to be like like push the issue and be more creative. Like, okay, mm. maybe we say that like, okay, uh, if if my small gym is going to reopen in classes of no more than five people, maybe also say those classes have to be the same five people.
0: Eh,
1: right, right. You wow. can't you can't like you you <laughs> have your slot and that's when you can go and you can't switch slots. Yeah, right? and you know. Or you have to have,
0: but even then, I mean, if there were five classes of, of five people throughout the day, even if it's the same five people, that means twenty five people have come through the doors, right? Right.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, the gym, right? And the gym would have to like have a policy of wiping down and doing exactly. heavy duty cleaning and sterilizing before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Several good friends of mine are are, are owners of kickboxing I, I have mine. Their livelihoods depend on this. So My I've had some. Gym? I have had some dis- discussions about I this. I have right? too. Like, Uh, and, uh, the, you know, so I I do think it's not safe It's Mm -hmm. in the sense of being absolutely safe, right. But there are ways you can make it safer. Gotcha. And I think we shouldn't stop ever stop the conversation around one of these things around is it safe or is it not safe? I think we should say, okay, can we, is it safe? can we make it safe how is it not safe can we make it safer and then at some point you know it becomes a, a judgment of what you know your priorities are and the priorities are the people mm-hmm. around you but i do think we need to just say like but the overall epidemiological situation matters a lot here sure opening of the gyms when things have been knocked down to just a few trains of transmission may make sense right a lot of places were nowhere near there nowhere near and Exactly you know, it probably, you know, in my opinion, it probably doesn't. Gotcha.
0: Okay. I, that's very useful. Thank you. Um, okay. Well, I think we've covered a lot for now. Well, until the next coronavirus episode, probably, guys, can you sign a contract here? Um, uh, but anyways, I'd really like to thank you guys for taking your the time out of your crazy busy schedules and joining us for yet another coronavirus episode. I know that Um, A lot of friends and family have told me how much they value these. So, um, Justin and Michael, I really want to thank you. Um, I'd also like to thank Sue Bevin for for producing the show. And before we go, if you're an epidemiologist, I strongly recommend you consider becoming a member of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which will be held in December this year in Boston, and access to the SER library, which gives you access to some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. You can find out more at epiresearch.org. We appreciate you listening. We'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks.